once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Where is the God of justice? How many times have we heard this asked? How many times have we asked it ourselves? But we have to be careful what we ask for. For who can endure the day of his coming or stand when he appears? Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series Questioning God with this message entitled Questioning God's Justice, which covers Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 6. Thank you for joining us today. Our subject matter for this week is God's justice. We're in the book of Malachi, if you're new with us. The series is entitled Questioning God, and this week it's on justice. So you tell me, what do you think? Does God seem to be a fair and just God to you? I was just reading this week, 10,000 children in the Syrian conflict, two-year period of time, approximately 10,000 of little children have been put in government detention and are being raped regularly, being tortured daily. If you read what I read, they gave the detail of the torture. I, I would be criticized for giving description that's in the media. It's so horrific. The exact same torture that I heard from the Iraqi pastors when I was there in Iraq the week after Saddam Hussein was captured and just released all these prisoners that were pastors. And I had the privilege to meet with them and hear their stories. And when I heard them, I, 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 it was a nightmare for weeks. I, I couldn't imagine even possible that somebody could endure what they went through. These are people that serve the Lord. Why in the world would God allow that to happen? These little children, God says he loves the little children. Is that a just God? You look in our own midst. We've got pain and suffering. I would put up to any pain and suffering anywhere from anybody. We've got a story of Heidi Leith, who's been now years in bed and in agonizing, excruciating pain, day in and day out, day and night. Why doesn't God give relief? Is God not all-powerful? Can he not change the circumstances of our life? Well, we know he could. And so the question, is God just? Let me ask you, do you ever question the justice of God? Anytime you find yourself saying, well, it just doesn't seem right that God would allow, and whatever that might be, maybe in your own experience and circumstances. Well, those questions are being asked by the Israelites. There's a difference, though. You and I ask the question, and hopefully, when we do, we ask it and have our doubts appropriately. Honestly, we have our questions. You know, we're among good company, if that's the case, because it was true of Habakkuk. It was true of Jeremiah. He asked the same question. Uh, you know that many of you know David, the psalmist, the king himself, he asked those questions. There was a little bit of difference, though, in that the king... And the others, such as King David, uh, even many of us who ask the question in our, in our desire to understand, but in the long haul, there's faith that remains. The people of Israel, different story. It turned to cynicism. 
They were now complaining. They're denying that God is a God of justice. They're saying, uh-uh, can't be. And the reason was they were looking at the circumstances that they were going through. Here's the way they were thinking, like many of us do. Now, wait, if I am good, God ought to treat me in an appropriately good way. If I am bad, then I understand that God would allow bad things to happen to me. But when bad things are happening to good people, then we claim, now we question the justice of God. That was the case for the Israelites. There were pagan nations that appeared to be better off than the Israelites were at this particular juncture of time. And they said, therefore, God is treating these people as good, and he's treating us as bad, therefore, that is wrong. I'm going to read the text just verse by verse rather than read it all together at first because when you read it, it's a tough text. You won't understand it all. It's my job to make it simple. But there is no way that I have found that I can walk through the text, make it simple, and you get the bigger picture without adding something at the end. And so I'm going to do some of the very end that hopefully is going to say, now I begin to understand. So let's take it from that approach. Keep in mind... They've already questioned many things about God. They've questioned, first of all, they've questioned his love. They've questioned his honor. They've questioned his whole understanding and view of marriage and why the restrictions were put on marriage. Now they're saying, and we question your justice, God. And so open your Bibles to the second chapter, verse 17 of the book of Malachi last book of the Old Testament. As you're looking for your place, I will suggest to you that if you want to understand justice, you have to understand there are two kinds of justice. And I want to define those two types of justice for you. Uh, the first is a uh, distributive justice. Uh, and this would be defined this way, not by me, but uh, I found this definition. The rightful distribution of goods and services by an agent, and I'm going to insert the word God there because he is the agent, to a recipient or group of recipients, and I'm going to call that mankind. That's my word to add. So do you understand distributive justice? Is it fair that they get this and I get that? Well, naturally, we all think that fair and just is given the same to all people. Jesus approached that in Scripture and said, not so, gave a parable. He said, no, fair does not mean same. So we've talked about that here in the past, all right? Now, important to understand that there are two requirements for distributive justice. So watch this. First of all, there must be an agent legitimately empowered to distribute the goods and services. And I'm going to put my own word yes there, saying there is one who is legitimately empowered to distribute goods and services. Goods and services, what do you mean? Well, protection, provision, whatever it is you want and need. You know, God can provide those things. So is there an agent that is empowered to do it? Absolutely. He's all-powerful. But notice it also requires, number two, 
recipients legitimately entitled to the distributed goods. And I put a no there because this is the big aha that people of the world never embrace, and that is that we are a broken, fallen people responsible for the condition of being broken and fallen in that Adam all sinned, and that's a huge question. I've addressed it even in the last series we did. It's a huge question, but we are sinful people rightly deserving to be broken in that we are legitimately responsible. It's called the depravity of man. In Romans 5, it talks about that we are one people. There's a corporate personality. In Adam, we are all one. The beauty of that idea is that because in Adam, we all die, that that corporate personality also shifts over to Jesus, the second Adam, and in him, we all can live without being righteous, just like we can be sinful without being the initial sinner. We can be righteous without being the initial righteous one. How? Just by joining his family. So that's that whole concept. But we are a broken, fallen people, and we do not deserve the goods and services of God. When you begin to get that, it begins to sink in. It's the historic teaching of the depravity of man. When you begin to understand that important teaching with the glory of God's grace, wonderful things happen in life. Balance of life comes out. But you take away the glory of God's goodness or you take away the, the sinfulness of man and you've got a warped understanding of life. Now, that's one type. It's called distributive justice. Retributive justice. Justice is another whole type of justice. It's the right or duty to punish a transgressor for violations of appropriate laws. Does God have the right and the duty to punish those that violate his law? Yes. So justly, a broken and fallen people deserve to be punished for it. Call it judgment. Now, when you look at the realities that we've just talked about, these two types of justice, we now can see maybe what Malachi is saying, which is really God saying it. He's speaking through Malachi. And so let's look at four ways that God's, God's justice can be observed or understood. It's not going to be convincing at first, but you hang in there. It builds. Number one. His warning. Verse 1a, in fact, I should go back to verse 17. If we can, let's go back to 17. I want to start here. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, this is that diatribe, if you've been in the text with us over the last weeks, uh, you know, God speaking for both parties. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? God says, in that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? And he's saying, here's why, because, look, you're treating evil people as if they're good. These other people, you're treating good people as if we're evil, Israelites. So, where is this God of justice? They're coming right out and saying, God, we do not believe you're a just God. It's not we, we don't understand, it's confusing to us, it's you're not just because of what you're doing. So now, God has the opportunity through Malachi to defend his own justice. 
So if you were to, on God's behalf, defend his justice, what would you say? Well, God has told us how he would defend his justice. And it begins with this first point, which is his warning. And his warning is 1A. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Hmm. All right, now you that are Bible readers, you tell me, who would you guess this would sound like who? Who would be this one that is going to be a messenger that's going to clear the way before me? And notice it's a capital M, obviously referring to God. Who would it be? John the Baptist. Yeah, this is, uh, this is taken right out of Isaiah 40, the same truth being taught that God was going to send, he's going to send his son. The me there is Messiah, as we'll see in a minute, but he's going to send one before him. Why? What did John the Baptist do? He simply warned the people of, of the day. He's saying, here is the reality. There's one coming, and you better, what? Repent. That was his message. Repent, meaning you have sin. Deal with your sin. You must deal with your sin. There's a warning there. As he does so, there, there's an Eastern custom and keep in mind, this is prophetic for the Israelites. They had to trust God that history would be fulfilled that was promised. Now, what we have the advantage, we look back to see history fulfilled. And there was one named John the Baptist, and he did come to prepare the way. Well, there was Eastern customs of the day, and that was that, that a, a king, before he would arrive at a destiny, would send someone before him, and it was that person's job to remove all obstacles, all problems that might interfere with his mission. And so now this is the story of the king of kings who's coming, and he's sending one before him, John the Baptist, who's going to say, look, you've got a sin problem. You have to deal with it. And the beginning of dealing with the problem is repentance. You have to know what you're doing is wrong to begin with. And that was a message that was given. And Malachi, speaking for God, is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. you say God is not just? No, if God were not just, then he would never have sent, and in this case promised to send, a messenger who is going to prepare the way so that you might be able to know God. Now you, you call God saying, you're saying I'm not just? Why in the world would I send John the Baptist and you call me unjust? Well, that's the first detail of four, but it is an issue. The reality is he didn't owe us a warning. He didn't have to warn. He could have sent the Lord, and the Lord comes to judge. But he says, no, it's because of grace and mercy. I am, I'm going to send one beforehand. But he doesn't stop there. Look at number two, his redemption, beginning with the uh, uh, first or the second part of verse one, it reads this way: "And the Lord whom you will uh, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming," says the Lord. Now, by the way, they were using these things. He's saying, you know, you are saying that you delight in his coming. 
and all of this. Later, he's going to make it real clear. You shouldn't delight in his coming because it's not going to be good news like you think it is. But the point is, he's saying, I am sending, I am sending one who is to be the Christ. Now, if the text says, uses the word the Lord, the Lord and the Lord in that first phrase, the word Messiah it is a form of, uh, it, uh, it's not the word Messiah, it's referring to the Messiah. It's actually taken from a form of the word Adonai. Well, Adonai refers to uh, the one that is, uh, controls all, that owns all. If you put a definite article, if we were to use the English comparative, if you put a definite article in front of this word in the singular, it always means deity. So there's no question here. He's prophetically talking about the coming of Jesus. It says he will come suddenly. That word suddenly literally carries the idea of unexpectedly. Coming unexpectedly. Therefore, this is in essence what he's saying. He's saying, if I weren't just, I wouldn't send you my son. Not only do I send John the Baptist, but I send my son and you call me unjust? The point is this. I didn't owe you my son. I've chosen to give you my son. Therefore, it is of my grace and my mercy that I'm giving you something so special and you're criticizing me for not giving you what I should. So he's building his argument little bit by little bit. Verse 2 carries on this way it says but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap who can who can endure the day of the lord well the psalmist in psalm 24 answered it and he says i'll tell you who can endure the coming day of the lord it's those who have clean hands and a pure heart well it's very interesting he uses this the phrase fire and soap Fire and soap. Fire is used to separate slag from the metal. Soap was used to separate dirt from clothing. And he's saying, what I'm coming to do is to provide you this one, my son, who is going to separate you from your unrighteousness. He's going to separate us from the sin of our life. It's a prophetic word that I'm sending my son to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. So he doesn't end there. We go to number three. It refers here to his refining, verses three and four, and it reads like this. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now what he's saying here, fire also is used to purify, not just to separate, but to purify. And so here would be the idea of the refiner who knows that as the dross is taken out of the metal, that liquid metal becomes like a, like a, a mirror. 
And the refiner can look down and actually see his own image in that liquid. It's that pure. And he's saying, that's what I'm doing for you people. You don't understand it, but I am not just redeeming you. I am also committed to refining you. You're all about good circumstances. I'm all about good character. And you're going to see in eternity. You will find out in time. It is the best thing I could ever do for you is to focus on your character, not on your circumstances. In fact, it's the fire that's often not desirable that creates the purity that is desirable. So he's, he's simply saying, you got to understand, this is, this is not something bad. It is actually something very, very good. I have a friend. His name is Steve Saint. Some of you are familiar with that name. His father, Nate Saint, was one of the handful, I think it was four of the men who went down to what were then called the Alka Indians in uh, South America, a cannibalistic people, and they gave their lives knowing that it was very, very possible, if not likely, that they're going to lose their lives trying to do so. But they said, we don't care. That's what we need to be doing. Now, these were not old saints that had been walking for years and finished their family duties and all the nice things of life are kind of gone and now there's only suffering and pain left and therefore, let's just give it all now. No, these were young families. Steve was just a little boy at this time. They ended up trying to meet up with these Alka Indians and they killed all of them. Word came back to the jungle town, little village that they had set up where they were trying to get into these Alka Indians and word came back, your dad is dead to the mom, your husband is dead. And each of the spouses heard that, those words. Steve has given his life for missionary service. He's an incredible man of God, walks with God, loves God. I had him speak here not too awfully long ago. Part of his story is the, the story of his daughter who had been serving abroad, came in. I forget all the details, but they long, they hadn't seen her in so long. They were so excited about seeing her. And she comes to the door and they hug her and excited to see her. They had a party planned. And she said, before the party, I need to go lay down. My head's hurting. And she died right there. I think a hemorrhage in her brain. And the great pain and loss of their daughter, young daughter. Now he's trying to refine a product for missionary service and, and utilizing it. He was in a terrible accident and in doing so he's left functionally as a, a quadriplegic. And he and I have been kind of interacting and talking a little bit over uh, text and telephone and he sent me a text recently and I thought it might be worth reading. And keep in mind, not only is he left in this condition, but he's in horrific pain almost constantly. So much so that he longs to die to get out of the pain. But this is what he says. I should mention, they filmed this, event, this whole story. They did a film on the feature screens of, uh, you know, that was here uh, called End of the Spear. Many of you saw it. And this is what he's referring to. When I was part of the filming of End of the Spear, I learned a lot about making a story in haphazard pieces. So it seemed. 
that all would fit together into a comprehensive story at the end. They would film a scene from the early part of the story and then follow it with another scene from the near end of the story because it's more efficient to do it that way. It only made sense when we saw the whole story played on the screen in front of us. I am confident that God can put all the scenes he writes with our individual lives together at the end of the epic and it will all make sense. My mom said once when asked about how she felt about my dad's death, if God had left it up to me, this is probably not the role I would have chosen for myself. But then immediately she caught herself and shook her head vigorously and said, no, no, I don't want to write the story my way. I'm perfectly happy having God write it his way. That doesn't mean that there are not days when I yearn to have this role in. Yes, there are days when I would just like to die. There's a great line in John Piper's book about Job. Piper writes, unkindly he God. He hath kindly shown that he is my hope alone. It's amazing how, like nothing else, this extreme physical and emotional pain has taught me that God is my only hope. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, Steve. I called him and we talked about it. And he said, you know, it's true that it's the worst thing that's ever happened outside my daughter. But he said... It's the best thing for me that I've ever experienced. I can't tell you what God's doing in my life, but I can't believe he could have done without what he's given to me. He's just referring to the idea that God is the refiner. And as such, that is an act of grace and goodness. It is not an issue of injustice. So basically what he's saying here is, if you want to see my justice... Look at my refining work, because he would put it this way, if I weren't just, I wouldn't refine you. In fact, the refining process is an act of grace. That's why we would read in James 1, when you consider it all joy, or consider all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect results, you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a teaching of Scripture. Lastly, number four, his judgment found in verse five. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now what he's saying these Jewish people, they professed to be gods. Their lives showed otherwise. This is really a description of many of the, of the Israelites. And, and these same people are angry with God because God's not doing it the way they think is fair and right and just. And he's saying, you know what? Because I am just, I will judge my enemies. We think, God, if you were just God, you wouldn't bring judgment. He says, no, 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 no. It's because I am just that I must bring judgment to my enemies. Just like I bring to you a warning, I bring to you a redeemer, I bring to you a refining work, all because I'm such a just God. I also bring my judgment because I am a just God against those who are not mine, who would never turn to me. Now, that's basically the teaching. 
He closes with this verse 6 of this main point. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. That means he's immutable, if you're familiar with that term, never changing. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Ah, here's what he's saying. He said, now, you got to understand, I'm a just God, but I'm also immutable, meaning I will always stay that way. I cannot change. I made a promise to you people, Israel, that stands for the church today. It's an everlasting covenant. And the promise is, I will be a God to you. He says, I will always have a remnant. Now, there may not be a lot. There may be most people turn against me, but I will forever keep a love relationship with the people that are mine. You can count on that forever and ever. I'm going to do that. In order to do that, I've got to be a God of justice, and I will. But for me to be a God of justice and to keep that promise against a people as we all are sinful, I have got to show mercy. I've got to show my grace. That's why he included there's got to be a Redeemer. That's the story of Scripture. All right? We've, we've studied the text. And right now you'd go home and say, okay, that was maybe okay. I think I saw maybe what he's saying. Doesn't make me feel a lot better, but okay. So I said, how would I teach this? If I were to talk to somebody sitting over lunch, and they said, Randy, can you explain the justice of God? In a day when kids are being tortured and on and on. Can you explain? So I thought, okay, how would I do that? And I came to five statements that I think is just saying the very thing, what all scripture has to say. Here's how I would put it. Now, if you think you're going to write this down, uh, you're going to be disappointed. But this, you can go to our podcast and look under notes and all this will be there. You can pick it up very easily. If not, you can call it uh, Jackie. In fact, let's, she's not in this service. Everybody email Jackie and ask her for a copy of this this week. <laughs> no, don't, don't do that. Here's how I would say it. Five basic points. As part of humanity, we are all responsible contributors to this being a fallen and broken world. Do you follow that? Now, again, it's what I was referring to earlier in the message. We're all contributors, which means... In Adam, we all sin. Again, that has to be explained. But once you begin to understand that, we go, ah, we're all contributors. Uh, That's the, the consequences of brokenness is actually a world that is a war zone. And the reality is whether we're alien or allies or whether we're enemies, it doesn't matter. We are equal candidates for pain, suffering, and death. Do you follow that? We, get, we, we think, oh, we're not equal candidates because we're good people. They're bad people. Oh, we're Christian. They're non-Christian. No, that's wrong thinking. It's not in the Bible. We're all part of the fall. And as such, we are equal candidates for pain, suffering, and death. But number two, God has gone to great lengths not to mislead his people into thinking that for him to be just... Mankind should be exempt from intense heartbreak and suffering. I mean, if you know the Bible, and if you don't, please trust me on this, 
You can go to Job of the Old Testament. You can go through so much of the Old Testament, through all the epistles of the New Testament. I'm telling you, you're going to see it over and over and over. Nowhere did God try to give a message. Oh, by the way, you know, you don't have to worry about uh, intense heartbreak and pain. And there are Christian leadership and churches that are believing that. And they're just so disillusioned when it comes. You can't pray and know whatever you got's gone if you're righteous and pray the right way and do it. Everything's going to be not true. Christians would never die for that matter unless they wanted to. That's not true. So it leads us to number. And by the way, how about his son? He did send his son to experience pain. So obviously he wasn't trying to say, no, if you're, you're exempt if you're good. Number three, God promises that for only his people, keep that in mind, every disease Injurious experience and calamity experienced in this broken world is designed to lead either to the refining of one's character or to heavenly glory itself. In other words, as I've often quoted uh, Johnny Erickson, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Number four. Never, never, never ask God for divine justice. Now, we, can, we should fight for human justice, but don't ask for divine justice. Unless, and I'll finish reading, because all the sinful man would get would be judgment. You can thank God for justice, but always remember his grace. Because were it not for his grace, and we knew only justice, we would hate to see the hour. Lastly, though God's people cannot escape suffering, human injustice, and death, they can experience unusual peace because of God's assurance of his love. And that's the bottom line. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Christian, I know, and seeker for you, oh my goodness, I know how tough it's got to be. When we see the things of this world, it's so natural to think outside the truth of God. See, my job, and all preachers' job, is to take the truth and to keep letting it wash over the hearts and minds of the people. And you hear something once, doesn't make much, then you hear it again, you hear it again, you hear it again. And in time, what happens is the truth will set you free. Remember the condition of your own heart? You won't ask God's justice. But perhaps you'll ask for his grace and his mercy. You go to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you see his goodness. And you see that goodness. And then you thank God that he's not just a just God. And all those things that still bring question seem a little bit better. Remember what God has to say. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would remind us of these truths, as hard as they are to hang on to. Allow us to keep going over them and over them until it begins to make a, begins to make a difference in how we think and how we feel about life, but particularly about you. God, help us when we have that tendency to question your justice. May we even remember these four evidences that not only are you just, but you are gracious. 
Thank you. May we see the cross. May we know your love. May we fall deeper in love with you because of it. We pray in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.